Good evening, everyone. Again, we thank the Lord for your presence here, and we pray that you might continue to bless us as we open the word this evening. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew 24, because we are going to look at the same passage we did this morning, but this, sometime, this time in a little bit more detail. I'm doing this because this is, as I said, apart from Daniel chapter 9, this is probably one of the most significant passages on prophecy in the Bible. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the one who is uh, talking here. He's speaking, he's preaching. Uh, he is also the one who uh, teaches about prophecy in the book of Revelation. Always be reminded that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation of John. It is Jesus Christ speaking to us. That's his last word to us, as it were. Now, it's important for us to see the setting of Matthew chapter 24. And so I want to begin reading tonight from Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture, so please be sure you have your Bibles open and your pen ready. Matthew chapter 23, and I'll begin reading from verse 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bacchaniah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. There's that phrase again. Jer Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Again, the context here is Jesus presenting himself as king. This has been prophesied long ago by the Daniel and this event comes, but of course he's rejected. And this is Jesus, and his heart is broken here as he says these words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is turning away from the people of Israel, his own people, because they did not receive him as the Messiah King. In other words, because of his rejection as King and Messiah of Israel, Jesus is now turning away from Israel as a nation. And he's making it known what will happen during the time he is away and when he returns. He says these will occur when the nations come to realize who he really is and turn to him in faith. He says, I say unto you from now on you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you want to see what really happens and how the Jewish people responds to him, then go to Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. 
there you have a prophecy of how the people of Israel will finally realize that the one that was killed in Jerusalem so many years ago was actually the Messiah King. Isaiah 52, read from verse 12, and all of the chapter, verse, of, uh, chapter 53. Now, when you come into chapter 24 of Matthew, it's a continuation of this. This heart, this attitude, this emotional response that Jesus is making. In other words, Jesus uses a teaching moment now to teach his disciples some important prophetic truth. Here's what he says. Verse 1, chapter 24. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be turned down or torn down. That's a tremendous statement he's making. This is a magnificent building that was there. And Jesus is saying that every stone of this magnificent building will be torn apart. Actually, and because of this, some people say that the, the wailing wall, do you know what the wailing wall is in Jerusalem? They claim, they say that's the remaining stones from the temple. Many people deny that. Because according to this verse, all of the stones are supposed to come down from one another. All right? And not hold, many hold that, but that's the view that is given. I tend to go that way anyway. In other words, disciples now are coming out and they were actually... Uh, uh, glorifying in this building. They were boasting in its splendor, but then Jesus burst the bubble. I don't know if you can see this temple. Does it come out? It's a little... This is a picture of the temple before it was destroyed, a graphic, in 70 AD before it was destroyed. On the right is the fortress Antonia, and on the left is the great temple itself. Emperor Hadrian built a temple to Jupiter over this fortress, Across the bridge right there is the Mount of Olives where Jesus was nailed to a tree. And in fact, that's probably where he, was, he went from there to the temple and now he's going back as we'll see. In other words, Jesus is saying that this glorious, magnificent building will be completely destroyed. In context, Jesus is saying that this will be the consequence of Israel's rejection of him as king and Messiah. And the reason why they rejected him is because they did not accept the prophecy that was given about him. You'll see that in a moment. Now, let's look at verse 3, the anxious questions of the disciples. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, there's several important things we need to see here. First, this is a private discussion. Jesus is speaking to his disciples probably things that he would not speak to others about. This is a private discussion on the Mount of Olives, and he was probably sitting down. And I was thinking about doing that tonight, but I didn't have Terrence to bring me my chair. This is not in public where the other people or even the other disciples could hear. Scriptures seem to indicate that Jesus spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
It seemed that that's where he went to commune with his father. We would say that's where he went to have his times of devotional, his devotional time. He spent a lot of time there reflecting, and perhaps that is what he was doing when the disciples came up. They saw him reflecting as he was looking at this great temple. And I believe he must have been thinking about these issues and especially the awful consequences that the Jews will face as a result of rejecting him. I believe he was reflecting on these things in the mount in the garden. There he always spent his time with the Lord. Mark tells us the disciples to whom Jesus gave this private interview was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now notice that they asked three specific questions. Three specific questions. Number one, when will these things be? This is related to the destruction of the temple they were looking at. When will these things be? When will this temple be torn down, no stone left? Second question, what will be the sign of your coming? And notice, not will be the signs of your coming, but will be the sign, the sign of your coming. This relates specifically to the second coming of Christ as king again to set up his kingdom on earth, the kingdom that is rejected when he came the first time. The third question is, what will be the sign of the end of the age of the world? When will everything be climaxed? This relates specifically to the final sign of the end of the age, meaning, of course, God's dealing with man prior to his setting up his own kingdom on earth. Three questions were asked. Matthew's gospel does not answer the first question at all. This relates to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but Matthew does not deal it, with it. This is given more in detail in Luke. Matthew and Mark answers the second and third questions. And they actually refer to Christ's coming at the end of the age, and they see that as one event. Christ's coming and the end of the age. They see that when, they have the idea that when he comes, that's it. That's the conclusion of everything. But Jesus is going to show him, show them that that's not exactly true. This world will never end. This earth is here forever. It will be renovated, but it will never end. All right? Matthew's account of the Oliver, the course of the, of the Oliver discourse records the portion of Christ's answer that, is, that relates to his future kingdom and how it will be brought in, which is one of, the major part, one of the major purposes for this gospel. Because remember, the gospel of Matthew is written specifically to Jewish people to explain that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So what Matthew has to do with this particular element here or aspect. Now when we, get, we try to break the passage up, Verses 4 to 14 give us the general characteristics of the time leading up to the end, beginning with the time of Jesus and going on until he comes again. Sometimes people don't realize that Jesus Christ actually ushered in the last days. The last days started long ago. The last days doesn't mean it's the last everything happens. It's the last time having to do with Jesus dealing with his people in a certain way. It really started from the time Jesus Christ came. He actually ushered in the whole period then known as the last, the last days. His resurrection, remember, was the first part of the first resurrection of life. You know that. The future, we look ahead to the resurrection of life or the resurrection life being in the future. But it's already in process. Jesus was the first one. We're going to be the next. But what I'm saying to you, the last days have been here since the time of Jesus Christ. And he put things in motion. They're going on. 
We are in the process. The wheels are turning. You don't say we're waiting for the... We are in it. We just have to look around and see what is happening. We have to be like the sons of... Who were they? Who could read the times and know what to do? Sons of who? Frank, who is that? Anybody know who they were? Uh, it'll come. To read the signs and to know what to do. That's what we should be today, and that's what we should be doing. Verses 15 and 20 to 26 gives us the more specific sign. Let's begin our detailed study here with the general ones that Jesus called the beginning of birth pangs, which I noted this morning that these are actually not true signs as we normally think about it. They are non-signs with reference to what Jesus was concerned about here. Beginning at verse 4, Jesus warns concerning deception relative to signs of his coming. This is what he says. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Now this is a common and pervasive warning by Jesus and the apostles throughout scriptures. Whenever they start to talk about these things, they always begin with this. Watch out. Don't be deceived. Because he knows that that would be pervasive. People who are trying to deceive the people of God and people in general. And that's a sign, that's a warning for us as well. We laugh, we laugh at these things. We turn on our TVs, we turn on and we listen to everybody who comes on, especially the TV. We just listen to it. Jesus says, beware. But are we beware? Oh no, man, isn't that nice? Isn't that pretty? Look at that hairdo. Boy, look at those fancy things. Beware. That's what Jesus is saying. Beware. Beware. People will try, and many will succeed to deceive many concerning the Lord's return. That's why there's so much coldness and, and laxidaseness with the people of God. We've been deceived. We've compromised so many things with the Word of God. Holiness is a lost concept to the people of God. Commitment, sacrifice, those things are lost concepts for the people of God. Why? Because we need to be rich. God wants us to be comfortable. God wants us just to be happy. We are deceived. Being deceived every day. Look at verse 5 now. For many, now he gives the reason why. For many will come. Now, not just a little bit. Many will come. You know, this is another thing. Jesus says that there are two roads. A broad one and a narrow one. Who's on the broad one? The many. Where do we like to be? With the uh-uh. Don't say the narrow. We like to be with the many. We like to go with the crowd. We don't want to stand ourselves for conviction against things that are immoral. No, no, no. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is getting away with it. Why shouldn't I? The many. Many will come in my name. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Saying, I am the Christ. And, I, and they will mislead many. I call this a religious or spiritual deception. Why? 
because they come in the name of Christ and they claim to be Christ. And that's probably one of the greatest areas of deceptions today, religious. History is replete with such individuals. In fact, they started even before Jesus came. Do you know that? There are people who called themselves the Messiah even before Jesus came. But after Jesus Christ came and claimed to be the Messiah, and after he died for our sins and he was buried and he was raised again, then they started to increase even more. Even more. And now more and more and more people are claiming to be Christ. Now one of the twists of this now, even how people call, claiming to be the Antichrist. One fellow goes around, he calls his church the church of the 666. And everybody is identified already with 666 and he's preaching Jesus. This is not fairy tales that Jesus is talking about. The only reason some of these things are so strange to us is because we are not reading the signs. Now I include verse 9 and 11 here in this particular area of religious signs. So jump down to verse 9 in your Bible. Then we'll come back to verse 6. Then they will deliver you to tribulations, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. This is worldwide religious persecution. This is happening even as we speak. But it also happened at the very beginning of Christianity, and it continues today. But we need to realize that what is happening today as far as persecution of the church is concerned, there is more persecution of Christians taking place today than has ever taken place in the history of the church. Do you realize that? More people are being killed for Jesus Christ, being persecuted for Christ than ever before in the history. In fact, some say that more people are being killed today than all the people who were killed in the history past combined. Are you aware of that? There's more persecution against the church, I say, than ever was in the entire history of the church. And will get worse, climaxing in the great tribulation. That will be a time when all of the aliens, now I mean aliens, I don't mean out of space. I, 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 all of those who alienated from Christ, who are under the Antichrist, the man of sin, they will be out especially looking for Christians to kill Especially. This is the birth pangs principles in action right before our eyes. These things are getting more severe. It's getting worse every day, every month, every year. Look at verse 10. At that time, when all of these things are happening, many will fall away. Now notice now, many again. Many will fall away. I want you to see throughout Scripture. It's never the many who follow Jesus Christ. It is the, never the many who go after God. It's only the few. It's only the remnant. It's only the little bit. You see? That's verified here. Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. This is speaking about apostasy, hypocrisy, and increased 
in false teachings. Deception will increase. This is repeated again and again. And so I say to you, my people, listen, get the message. Watch what you read, watch what you listen to, watch what you see. You could be deceived. Don't look, oh, I think I'm strong enough to listen to this. You know what the Bible says? Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We go back now to verse 7. And I call these the political nun signs. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Notice this now. See that you are not frightened. You see, this is vividly again illustrated in this call I got from the island. These people are afraid. Wars, that's one of the aspects they're looking at. And the people who are coming on the scene say, man, what's going to happen? These people are afraid. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. Notice that. They must take place. But that is not the end yet. Do you see that? That's not the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom. This is something that happens by the nature of the fallen world. This refers to universal or worldwide wars. They will be going on simultaneously between nations around the world as the birth pangs increase. But Jesus gives a special warning. See to it that you are not frightened. Why? Because these things are ordinary things. Expected. They started way back. Way back, and it keeps on. But the point Jesus wants to see is that they're becoming worse and worse, but they're not the final sign. Jesus is saying that these types of warfare are a part of human condition. They must and will occur and have been occurring since the creation of man or the fall of mankind. They're not unusual. Jesus is saying, so don't be fooled that they signify that my coming is near. You hear that preached on the radio all the time, don't you? Look at all the wars and the rumors of wars. Look at all these. That means Jesus Christ is coming right back, right away. Not according to these texts. Now, we're talking about the second coming. His rapture is different because as we'll show again and again, I want to remember there's no signs for the rapture. And so I call these non-signs of the end times. So we have to be careful how we read the signs of the times relative to the end days. These are not they. These are not them. These are not they. What is the right way? These ain't them. All right? <laughs> then he goes on now to talk about the physical or natural disaster signs in verse, in verse 7 again, the first part of verse 7. And he says, and various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, is that happening right now? You bet you like, all over the place. But you know it's been happening for a long time. But it is increasing, isn't it? Coming more and more. This is just a taste of what is yet to come, you see. These events are called by some acts of God. These are common events. These are the, like the cycles of nature. There are studies to show that hurricanes are necessary for the ongoing growth of the earth. Do you know that? 
It cleanses the earth. Scientific studies. It's amazing. But when we see these things beginning to occur in various places all at the same time and becoming more and more, more, and more uh, uh, awesome, we need to be saying, hey, there's a cloud coming in the sky. It's the beginning. It's not the end, but it's the beginning. As we know, this isn't happening right now as we speak with these famines and earthquakes and floods. But Jesus again says, these things do not indicate the end. Does he say that or doesn't he? Does he or doesn't he? He says it. It's the beginning of the beginning. Let's look at verse 8. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Just the beginning. Now, before birth pangs begin, what has to happen? Conception. You see, the elements that are involved with the destruction of the world and the corruption of mankind has already been conceived. It's only being worked out now. And there's only the Holy Spirit in the church that's holding it back. We talked about it in First Thessalonians before. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The events of this period of time, Jesus says, are like the onset of labor pains of a mother. I call it the birth pangs principle. They are strong enough to let the mother know that the time of birth is near. But they are not as severe as they will be when the baby comes. Still have some time. And so these dreadful events with tribulation are prefigured then by many smaller versions of the same things before the intense trouble of the tribulation begins. Jesus is saying the same things now that we experience in a minor way, we will experience later on in a much more severe way. That's what he's saying. The baby has been conceived. It's just growing. Verse 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, if this was the only sign here, probably people would be looking for Jesus Christ right now as far as the end of the world is going to the end of the age. Because lawlessness? Boy, if you take the Nassau as an example. Hmm. Lawlessness? What is law? But notice what it says. Lawlessness is increased. What happens because lawlessness increases? People's love will grow cold. We become immune to things that normally pain people. Sympathy is gone. That's why we have so much violence. People treat people like animals. No, no, take that back. People treat animals better than they treat people today. Grow cold. Why is it there seems to be so much callousness around the world? No emotion. Because of lawlessness. Worldwide lawlessness that leads to worldwide callousness. I call these social and moral non-signs of the coming of Christ. Peter speaks about this too. Let me read this as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to him. But realize this, 
that in the last days, difficult times will come. Why? For men will be lovers of self. See that? Men will be lovers of self. People call that humanism. Lovers of money. No way you're going to see here lovers of God or lovers of other people. Lovers of self, lovers of money. That's materialism. Boastful, arrogant, revilous, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's hedonism. And that's rampant today. Holding to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. How many people today claim to be Christians but know nothing about the power of God in their lives? To overcome sin. Nice, dress nice, smell nice, walk nice. Great profession. But know nothing of the power of the Spirit of God in their lives. As hypocrites. What does Paul say? Avoid such people. Somebody's reading this, said, what if I do that? I won't go to church. Because so many hypocrites. I say, that's fine. The best place for hypocrites to be is in church. You know that? Because if the word is preached, it could be reached. Amen? According to the birth pangs principle then, all of these things will increase in intensity, force, and frequency uh, in the ending of the end days. Then Jesus makes an encouraging prediction. Is that clock right? Alan, did you move that clock ahead? Good grief. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now this is another verse that is taken out of context. People say this teaches that a person is only saved if they hold on. But here in the context, it has, it has to do with the person who is, in, who is alive during the tribulation and all the problems is going on. And he says the one who endures through that period will be saved. They'll be saved at the coming of Christ. He's talking about physical salvation, not spiritual salvation. This is physical salvation. See, we have a tendency, every time we see the word save in the Bible, to think it's saved salvation from hell. That's not the way it's always used. And it's not used in that fashion here. He's being talked about being saved physically when Jesus Christ comes. Why? Because, listen, this is going to be a tough time. Antichrist and his people are going to be looking out to kill people who don't carry his mark. And there's all kinds of persecutions going on. And if you go through that, you're going to be saved because Christ is coming the nick of time for you, as it were. He's going to put it to an end. This is one. Now we come here to a bright spot uh, in verse 14 in all of this. A, really a bright note. It says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Again, people teach here today that until we get the gospel out, Jesus Christ will not come back as far as the rapture is concerned. That is not true. Jesus had come back today. He could have come back in the first century. 
The rapture has nothing to do with us reaching people for Jesus Christ. Woo, that's heresy. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Jesus Christ could come back any time. Now, does that mean you shouldn't be out talking to people of Christ? No, definitely not. But this passage isn't talking about that at all. It's important. Remember, I'm trying to go through this whole thing because one of the concerns is, Paul, is that we understand Scripture accurately or lest we can be disturbed, we're going to be deceived. That's why we're doing this. And this is one of the areas here. The gospel will be preached in the world and all the nations. Now, I believe that this could be accomplished by the work of the 144,000 who will be sealed by Jesus Christ himself. No one could touch him during this time. I believe it will also be done by uh, satellite or technology. From uh, It'll also be done by underground Christians around the world or most probably by the angels that we talk about in Revelation chapter 14. They will preach the gospel and warn people not to receive the mark of the beast. That's how it's going to happen, but it's already started. The gospel has already been proclaimed to most of the known world, not all. But there's coming a day when every area of this planet will be touched by the gospel. You see. We could say that we've seen then the beginning of this in our day. But it will be intensified and completed during the time of the tribulation. Jesus now comes to the core of his message. This is the point he wanted to make. This is the sign he wanted to reveal. And that's verse 15. Therefore... When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This is a powerful passage. This is probably one of the most important passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. In fact, it's chapter 9. In fact, these four verses at the end of chapter 9, probably some of the most important verses of the entire word of God. It gives us the whole scope of God's program. And notice Jesus saying, if you want to understand what I am saying, you must know Daniel. He spoke about it. And he points specifically to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Crucial passage of scripture. And we'll study this in detail about two weeks ago when we, to come when we look at Daniel chapter 9. But I just want you to see where it comes when Jesus is talking. Jesus is saying this is the most important sign right here. This is the, the sign you ask me about. It's the abomination of desolation. Let me read what Daniel says in chapter 9, verse 26 of his book. And we're going to go into this day later, details of this, so I can't do it tonight. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's 62 weeks of years. And have nothing. He will be cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come. That actually should read the people of the king. The word prince there is better translated king than prince. The people of the king who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Right up to the end, he says. It says who is this now? This is Daniel. Every word in this verse is pregnant with meaning. Waiting for us to give birth to the revelation here. But look at verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. 
But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing, the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete, complete destruction, one that is decreed, it has to happen, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is a powerful passage of scripture. Now, just to shorten things up here, what did Christ mean by the expression, the abomination of desolation. But remember, and by the way, look what he says here. He says, let the one who reads understands. That's a challenge to you all. You all should understand it. That's what you, I expect you to understand it. And we can only understand it if we study the word of God. This is Jesus' words to us today. You're reading it now, you should understand it. But what did he mean by this abomination of desolation? This term is found at least three times in the book of Daniel. But it is defined by him in chapter 11. And this is a prophecy that Daniel writes concerning a Syrian ruler. It's a prediction. And that ruler was Antiochus Epiphanes. He's actually Antiochus IV. Epiphany means the glorious one. He was also a Roman ruler. He reigned over Syria 175 to 164 BC. About 400 years after Daniel prophesied this. In his prophecy, this was Daniel said in chapter 11. They shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And that was fulfilled exactly to the letter. Exactly. Therefore, when the Jewish people read this, they understood what it meant. What happened back then? Well, this king... Well, this prince, they call him Antiochus Epiphany, who was a great persecutor of the people of Israel. And this story is written in the books of First and Second Maccabees. He wanted to stamp out the Jewish people. The Germans were the only ones. Antiochus Epiphanes was a prefigurement of all of this. He wanted to do away with the religion. He, he wanted to kill every man, woman, child. He wanted to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. And so he came in to desecrate the temple. What did he do? He offered a sow, a pig, in the Holy of Holies. There was nothing that was more of a blasphemy than that for the people of Israel. And then he erected a god to, the, to, the, to, to, to uh, Jupiter. Jupiter Zeus, one of those. He erected it in the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies. And he ravaged the Jewish people. And Tychus, Epiphany. And this is what Daniel is referring to when he calls it the abomination of desolation. And what Jesus is teaching is that this is only a small picture of what's really going to happen in the end times when the Antichrist comes up and he's going to do the same thing, but it's going to be done in a much greater way than Antiochus Epiphanes ever did it. This is how he describes it in verse 27. He, the prince that shall come, shall confirm the covenant with Israel for one week, for the many, that's the people of God. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. 
And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate. This prediction is that a future, future prince will do just what Antiochus Epiphany did in the second century B.C. And when that happens, when that happens, Jesus says, that's the middle of the time of tribulation. That's the beginning of sorrows. That's the beginning of Jacob's trouble. That's the beginning of the tri great tribulation. That's the beginning of the tribulation, the great one. That's the beginning of some of the off most terror and, th and, and savagery that you've ever seen on the face of the earth. That's the beginning of it. That's the sign. Now we're going to talk about this more because my time is gone already. Well, almost gone. Talk this, but, but let me end with this. We won't finish the whole message tonight. In, back to, number, to, to Daniel 9 15. A couple of things here. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel, by the way, in seminaries and Bible schools, you know which one of the big questions they ask? Who wrote the book of Daniel? And they got volumes and volumes written trying to show it wasn't Daniel who wrote it because the prophecies were so specific, he couldn't do that. But you know, looking back now, I wonder why I went through all of those studies. Because if I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he tells me that Daniel wrote Daniel, what's the end of the story? I ain't got nothing to fight. I ain't got nothing, what go we'll argue for? I ain't got nothing to argue about. You've got to come back now and show me that Jesus Christ is lying. And if you show that, then you can say he is not the son of God. So I don't bother with that stuff. Jesus says Daniel wrote it. And if Jesus said it, that's good enough for me. But notice it now. This is going to be in the Holy of Holies. This implies that the temple is standing. For the temple to stand, it must be rebuilt. For many people, they believe that it must be rebuilt right where the Dome of the Rock is now. And that's, of course, in the hands of the Muslims. People said, that'll never be done. Of course, now there's some theories. No, 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 that doesn't have to be removed. They believe the temple was either to the north or even to the south, some are saying. They, they think it's different places. But the temple has to, be, has to stand again. We're going to come and we talk about the signs of the time to see that they already have a school training priests to do this. They've already made all the garments. They've already made all of the instruments to be used. All they're looking now is for a red haifa who has to be offered at a certain time. They thought they had one, but they found a little blemish on him. You know what the blemish was? One hair was a different color. And this red haifa has to be completely unblemished. And he was blemished. So they're still looking for it. The point, and even a special, a special anointing oil that is used for the anointing in the Holy of Holies, couldn't be made because they couldn't find an ingredient in a plant, but they found it. The temple has been rebuilt. It will come about. Something else here. This implies that we should understand what Daniel is talking about. Let him who reads understand. This is a challenge for us to study prophecy and to study history concerning the church. We talk about people who can't read. We call them what? They're illiterate. Can't read. Today we have more illiterate Christians than ever before. They don't study the Bible. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Bible. They don't study it. 
And I say this again and again. Why? Because I believe this is what is necessary for Christian growth and power and strength. For people to know the word of God and then to obey it. If we don't know it, we can't obey it. We're going by our own feelings and inclinations and we're hearing old fables. That's what my passion is all about as a preacher teacher. To encourage our people to teach the word and to teach them how to do it. Jesus says, that's what you should be doing. Verse 17. Then whoever hours on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing baby in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now there's some things that we can see by implication here. The then here refers to when the abomination of desolation is set up. Again, it's so important for sequence here. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So he's talking to people who are living in Judea. When they set up, the people in Nassau ain't got to run nowhere. At least not yet. All right? There's a real sense of urgency here, though. There's still opportunity to be saved. Once you see this, you have time You have time to run, not time to stay. You have time to run when you see this set up. If you know the sign and you realize the significance as Jesus has prophesied, remember he said, behold, I have told you. He said this in advance. There's no reason why anyone should be caught off guard and say, I don't know. Why? Because Jesus says, I told you so. I want to read you an amazing verse. And I promise I'll end with this. Remember we talked about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Do you know why that happened? Why was Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD? Be like you said, because they rebelled against God, they disobeyed against God, all that. And all that is true, but let me tell you what Jesus says. I want you to listen to this verse. The context, again, is Jesus' so-called triumphal entry. By the way, if it's anything that was not triumphal, was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as king, because he was rejected. But this is when it's happening, when he offers himself. He wept over the city as he approached it. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 19, verses 43 and 44. I'll read from the King James Version. For the days will come upon you, then your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. And that happened exactly Jerusalem is besieged for months before they could finally overthrow it and surround you and hem you in on every side. It happened just like that. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. You want to read some horrific stories? Read Josephus and how the people were destroyed and how they tore the mothers apart and pulled the babies. I mean, it's a terrible thing that happened and Jesus prophesied it to the T. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's Jesus' reason for the destruction of Jerusalem. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. What visitation is talking about? He's talking about the promise of Jesus Christ to come into Jerusalem on a donkey and to present himself as king. We'll see that in Daniel 9. And it happened, but they did not recognize it. Why? Because they either didn't know the prophecy or they did, they 
rejected it. But notice, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, the reason why Jerusalem was besieged and sacked and completely destroyed was because they didn't know the time of his visitation. He, they didn't know when he would come as king, although the day was given right to the very moment. Daniel predicted it some 500 years earlier. They should have known, but they didn't. Or if they did, they didn't care. And their glorious city and magnificent temple, along with over some two million or more of the citizens, were killed and ravished. Why? Because the people either misread, neglected, or simply refused to study the Bible specifically with regard to prophecy. They, the Jerusalem, was ransacked and demolished because they didn't know they didn't know prophecy. Now, if you don't think that's a powerful message as are reading the Bible, I don't know what is. Because, this is Jesus speaking, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. My friends, this phrase is one of the most challenging, troublesome, and damning verses in the entire word of God. Many times the reasons why we get into problems spiritually is everything is because we don't know what the Bible says. Now for some, this could be a motivation to become diligent Bible students, and I hope it is. To become like the Bereans. But for others, it could result in spiritual condemnation as it did for the, Jew, as it did for the Jews. Why? Because you're not going to read the Bible. You're not going to study it. You're not going to care what it says. Because you're living too happily. You're too busy making a living. You're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. Something else here. The reference to those on the housetop and in the field and the ones taken off do not refer to the rapture. We can talk about that later. To refer to the coming of Christ. Those who are alive in the place of the abomination and desolation. That's just referred to as not talking about Christians in the rapture. Not talking about the rapture coming. Some are going to be left and some may be gone. Although that's going to be true, but they're not talking about it here. Again, the law is back in operation. This shows again they're talking to Jews. The word great here by the great tribulation distinguishes this part of the time of suffering from the beginning. In the first part of this seven-year period, it's not going to be terrible, terrible suffering. That's why some Christians believe we're going to be here, the church is going to be here, and we're going to take it out in the midst. But what Jesus is talking about is not about those first three and a half years. He's talking about the latter part. That's what he calls the great tribulation. He says, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. No life. No life. But for the sake of the elect, these days will be cut short. Now, this doesn't mean they're going to be cut short less than seven years or three and a half years. It simply means that Jesus can put it to an end. Boom. Now, listen, the technology to destroy the population of the earth was not in existence when Jesus Christ spoke, but is in existence today. The world can be destroyed. Again, I believe this is another inspiration of the scripture. And by the way, when you read scripture, look for these little things. There's so many little things, little indications to show that the Bible is the word of God. When you see a little explanation, look at it. And also, whenever you see the Pharisees get upset about something, read it. Whenever you see them get upset about something, because it's something... You remember when Jesus, the same thing, Jesus was going into the... Uh, into Jerusalem on the donkey, and the people hail, 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 Hosanna, who comes in the name of the king, and Pharisees tell them, remember, he complained, hey, 
Rabbi, stop your, stop your disciples from singing what they're singing. Why? Because they understood prophecy that when the people shouted that, that was the sign that the king was here. They knew it. They wanted to shut the people up. You know what Jesus said? He says, if they don't do it, the rocks will. The rocks will. By the way, how many of you go to Jerusalem? I mean, when you go again, when you, when you, when you go down and you're going up to Jerusalem down to, uh, to uh, where did Jesus come from? Uh, huh? Yeah, up to Jerusalem. Anyway, that pathway, pick up a rock along the streets. Bring it home. Put it on your desk or on your room. Put it, mount it up, mount it, and put it on a wall, put it on your desk. When people come and say, What's that? That has one of the rocks that didn't shout out. And you know what they can say? What are you talking about? Then you're going to have a great opportunity to talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. Serious. All right. Notice what he says here now. If they say, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he's in inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. I believe that the heavens will be ablaze with the glory of God when Jesus Christ comes back. And the whole world is going to be seen, not just Jerusalem. It's going to be seen around the whole world. So I don't believe this is going to just be one instant. I can believe it can be a time when the world is turning and everybody could see it through TV and everything else. Every eye is going to see him coming back at this time. We'll talk more with this later on too when I get... Find some way to increase time. Um, in verse 38, 28, now notice this. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is a strange phrase here. The New Living Translation says, Just as the gathering of vultures shows there's a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. One of my prophetic teachers, John Walvert, he says this, and I quote him, the meaning here is that the glorious coming of Christ is the natural sequence to blasphemy and unbelief, which characterizes the preceding period. Just as when an animal dies, the vultures gather, so when there is moral corruption, there must be divine judgment. Now, I'm not sure which one of these I agree with here. I like the New Living Translation. But I believe it has the idea that whatever God is going to, doing here is going to attract to everyone to this particular area especially Armageddon that we will talk about later on. He says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the power of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear. Something is going to appear before he comes. The sign of the Son of Man. That's what they were asking about. It could be this great light, this shining light that goes all over the world. It could be that. It will appear in the sky. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end, one end of the sky uh, to the other. What a glorious thing this is. When Jesus Christ comes to finally set up his kingdom on earth, he will come in glory and power. But you know something? You and I will not be here. Do you know what? We're coming with them. 
You talk about the spiritual warfare. You think we got a warfare here? When we come back with Jesus Christ, he is coming on his mighty white steed and his sword from his mouth that he's going to slay the Antichrist with. You know who's going to be behind him? Thank you. So you better learn how to ride horses. But we're going to be there with him. We're going to be there with him. That means we've got to be taken before. That's what we call the snatch, the rapture. Beloved, it can happen anytime. Are you living the kind of holy life that is needed to see God? Without holiness, no man is going to see God. I ask you then once again, are you rapture ready? Bow with me, please. Take a few moments if God has spoken to you in any way from his word and you need to make a commitment, a confession, please do it to him now. He's there with you. Commit yourself once again as I do. I do it all the time. And he will help me to live a holy life. That these members, the members of my body, will be given over to righteousness for his sake. And that we'll always be willing to share the glorious gospel, the good news, that we could snatch sinners from the jaws of hell. Pray that God will use you like that. Pray that he will put you on track to be ready for his return. If you're here this evening, do not know Christ as Savior, I implore you, recognize that you're a sinner as we all are, but that Jesus Christ died in your place. God raised him from the dead to validate the fact that he accepted Christ's death for you. And just let him know right now, I'm trusting you, Lord Jesus. I'm resting my faith in you. I'm relying upon you as the basis of my salvation. You do that, and you will be rapture ready. And all of God's people said, Amen.